Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. The Bowery Boys episode 157, Ghost Stories of Old New York. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo's editors inspect and recommend the best budget hotels in Europe. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello. 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 Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. With our seventh annual Halloween Ghost Stories podcast. So this show is inspired by a book that I found at a used bookstore. According to the inside of the book, it's from the Clarksville, Arkansas Junior High Library. It even has this little envelope where you put the library card. The mm-hmm. book is called The Ghost of Pegleg Peter and Other Folk Tales of Old New York by M.A. Jagendorf. Because Peter Stuyvesant is huge in Clarksville, <laughs> Arkansas. Well, I mean, they obviously got rid of the book, unfortunately, oh. but it's in our little hands. You know, it's a book of folk tales. And they're broadly drawn. We've told the Peter Stuyvesant story in a previous show. But it got my mind thinking about the older ghost stories that are associated with this region. Of course, one of the earliest stories of American literature, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, um, is about the area of Westchester written by Washington Irving. But there are a great number of other tales that are at least 200 years old. So this is the era that you and I are going to be focusing on tonight, the era of Revolutionary War, early 1800s, old New York. We will be going even back to the Native Americans who originally lived in the New York area. But you know the weird thing about this show, Greg? Even though they're all gone by the time 1830 rolls around, these characters have a way of sticking around. And some of their names live on as well as the names of streets and neighborhoods. So sit back and enjoy these four frightening tales of old New York. to actually start us off a little intro here with a reading from this particular book because it sets up my first ghost story very nicely. So the folktale that I'm about to read you is called, from Mr. Jagendorf's book, is called The Tale of the Three Footsteps. Before the lands now called Westchester were taken over by white settlers, the Indians who lived here told of great arguments between the devil and themselves. The devil always screamed and shouted, All the lands around these hills and rivers and meadows are mine and don't belong to you. The Indians danced a war dance, swung their tomahawks, strung their bows, and shouted back, This is our land. These are our hunting grounds, and you have no right to be here. Get out and get out fast, or our tomahawks will dance on your head and our arrows will make you look like a sieve for winnowing corn. A rather sassy response to give the devil. Exactly. It's the devil here. Bad words flew all around like sparks from a burning log. And soon the stone clubs begin to fly and the flint arrows begin to whiz. Day after day, the battle grew hotter. And the Indians were a whole tribe and the devil was all alone. In the end, the tomahawks and the arrows became too much for him and he had to flee. He sailed through the air and landed on a big boulder near the place where Fort Shiler was later built. Because, you know, this is a true story. Right, yeah. (laughs) Um, But the Indians were still after him, so he thought it wiser to run further away. 
but he was at the water's edge, and the devil did not like water. He looked to the right, and he looked to the left, big boulders jutting out of the water. I'll use them as stepping stones to get to the other side, where the Indians can't follow me, he said to himself. He picked up his long tail, so as not to wet it, and began leaping from stone to stone. Then, with one giant leap, he landed on a huge boulder on the Long Island side, where he left the mark of his right foot. The Indian arrows and tomahawks could not reach him there. He took deep breaths, for he had been running hard. This is a very kind of a weak devil here, isn't it? Anyway, the Indians... Well, the devil's in the details here. <laughs> the Indians chasing him came to the shore, and there they performed a wild victory dance, leaping around and swinging their tomahawks high in the air. The devil watched them and became more furious every minute. Then suddenly he leapt up again. He picked up the rocks and boulders lying all around him, and one after the other began flinging them wildly across the water, across the sound, into the land that is now Westchester and all the nearby parts. The Indians ran away, but the rocks remained on the land, while the devil remained peacefully on Long Island. This is a true story, for to this day... (laughs) (laughs) Wait, this actually says this is a true story. Yes. This is a true story, for to this day, you can see the devil's footprints in the rocks in Westchester and Fort Schuyler and Long Island. And you can also see that there are very few rocks on the island, while there are a great many in the land across the sound. That's what Long Islanders say, and Long Islanders always tell true tales. So what you're telling us, then, is that the devil still lives on Long Island? <laughs> Some would say that's true, Tom. Um, but that was a little folktale to explain this rocky terrain um, oh, right. of Westchester County. A true story. A, a true story, because Long Islanders never, never lie. They never lie. But, but it's a good setup for our first story here, because we're going to spend some time here in Westchester County, or more specifically, in the Bronx today, or, or mm-hmm. what the area was before it was called the Bronx. The story, in fact, that I'm about to tell you is called What's Buried in the Bronx. Westchester County has been closely associated with ghost stories and folktales, you know, even before the days of Washington Irving when he set his story, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, in the town of Sleepy Hollow, which is also in Westchester County. Right. So there are two major parks in the Bronx today that sort of abut the city limits between New York City and areas north. In one of those parks, Pelham Bay Park, there is an area called the Cedar Knoll. At some point in the 1600s, so basically when the Dutch had settled New Amsterdam, so around this period of time, there were two tribes of American Indians that had a fierce battle. You had the native Siwanoi tribe and an invading group of Indians from Long Island called the Matinecock. The Siwanoi were destroyed, were eviscerated by the marauders who eventually beheaded every member of the tribe, including women and children. So as early as the 19th century, around this era, the Cedar Knoll area, people have reported stories of strange apparitions in this area. Quote, the forms of many headless Indians might be seen on moonlit nights in a circle, performing a kind of war dance on its summit with their heads in their hands. That is not even the most haunted park in the Bronx. Which park is awarded that um, (laughs) particular distinction? That is owned by Van Cortland Park. Mm-hmm. That's the park, very large park, smaller than Pelham, but And not still very, very far away from it. Right, to the west of Pelham Bay, actually. It sits near Woodlawn Cemetery, and believe it or not, that... Seems appropriate. <laughs> yeah, but it has no bearing on the ghost that I'm even about to talk about. That's oh. what's pretty amazing. This land was purchased from the Indians by the Dutchman Adrian Vanderdonk, who called the entire parcel of land De Jonkersland. Which shouldn't be a punchline, but who can resist? It's a, it's, a, it's a fun word to say, and it obviously, of course, gives the city of Yonkers its name, of course, which is just north of Van Cortlandt Park. And, of course, what separates them is the city line. But the area that is Van Cortlandt Park today was purchased by the Van Cortlandt family in the 1690s. Now, I'll speak about the family in a second, as most of the ghostly activities centers around their house. Mm-hmm. But the park itself is haunted. Ghosts around trees and squirrels, yes. The park itself is even haunted due to a horrific event that happened here in 1778 during, of course, the Revolutionary War. 
Stationed in the village of Yonkers was a, an interesting group of men who were fighting for the American cause against the British. Um, it was a group called the Stockbridge Militia, which was actually a group of American Indians who took their orders from Washington and fought on the side of the Continental Army. And this was unusual. This was fairly unusual because m- when you did have Native Americans fighting, they were actually fighting against the Continental Army, against Washington. This was a very, very small skirmish and is, of course, forgotten in the many dozens of events during the Revolutionary War. But on August 31st, 1778, the militia fought against the British forces here in the forest of what's today's Van Cortlandt Park, and they were brutally slaughtered. Between 37 and 40 men lost their lives that day, and then their bodies were just left there in the clearing, left to rot Mm -hmm. by the British. Now, just a few days later, in a nearby village, uh, some of the villagers noticed that their dogs were acting rather strangely. I'm not quite sure what that behavior was, but they were acting very strangely. So they followed their animals back into the woods and discovered a ghastly sight. The dogs had actually begun dragging away some of the militiamen here, some of the dead bodies that were laying there, and had begun to devour them. The villagers were, of course, so horrified by this that they took the bodies, they took the remaining bodies, and buried them in a mass grave here in the area of the park and covered it with rocks so that the animals could not get at them. So this area was called the Indian Field. But this was not a proper burial, of course, for these men. And so because of that, a lot of ghost legends have popped up as early as the mid-19th century. In 1872, there were reports that the head sachem, the leader of the militia, a man named Daniel Nimham, well, that his ghost was actually seen floating above the area of the Indian field. In anger, in sadness, this ghost was seen and was regularly seen in the 19th century, mourning his men and vowing for revenge. Believe it or not, in Van Cortland Park, you can play tennis or baseball in a little area, a little sports area called Indian Field. Now, mm-hmm. it's not where the bodies are, because I think that would be incru- uh, distasteful. <laughs> very distasteful. But it's named Indian Field in honor of the Stockbridge Militia. Well, so that's the park. But, but what about the Van Cortlands family home? Oh, of course. Well, the, the most prominent historical landmark in the park is, of course, the Van Cortland House. The progenitor of the Van Cortland family, Jacobus Van Cortland, bought the land here in the 1690s, settled his family estate here, and became very affluent because of a grist mill that they bought here and a grain plantation. In 1748, Frederick Van Cortland would build the mansion that is there today. It is the oldest house in the Bronx. During the Revolutionary War, it was actually sometimes a headquarters uh, for George Washington. And it had other guests related to the war, including uh, John Adams and the Marquis de Lafayette. But of course, being sort of central to the Revolutionary War, there was a lot of battles to the north and south of here, a lot of strife that occurred. And as sometimes happens, this has left scars in the form of otherworldly guests. A who's who of ghosts has been spotted here. Everyone from Adrian Vanderdonk himself, who was murdered in an Indian raid and is said to float about the grounds here. Some even say that George Washington haunts it, but I I can't imagine why he would haunt this particular place. (laughs) He didn't spend that much time. I think the most prominent ghosts are actually the nameless ones, the ones that we don't know who who they are. One source claims that the house is haunted by a Hessian soldier who at some point in the building's history, had become dangerously intoxicated. And for his own protection, the owner of the house at that time tied him to a bedpost. I guess this was one way of sobering someone up. Mm -hmm. Just tie him down. But when he awoke from his stupor and realized he was tied down, well, he started wailing and crying. And he he was disoriented and didn't know what happened. And, well, it was obviously so traumatizing for this man that his ghost... His ghost said to return to this place of agony, as though bound here for all time. There's another ghost, one of a servant girl who still haunts the interior of the house. There's two competing stories, but they're both very similar. In one of the stories, the servant girl is actually quite helpful to the Van Cortlands. During the Revolutionary War, she hides the family's fine silver. She hides it somewhere in the house so that when the British raid, they can't steal it. They can't find it. 
However, it seems that she forgot where she put the silver. And so to this day, she's still searching for it. You may hear a drawer in the other room sliding, opening. You may hear doors slamming. You may hear a shuffling of feet because she's still been looking for it. Haven't been able to find it. In the other version of this story, she actually steals the silver. She's not hiding it, but she's stealing it for herself. And so in this version, it's more of a guilt-ridden ghost who's taken this silver and is now cursed for all time to be in the house that she once served. Oh, I prefer the story where she's helpful. (laughs) Whatever she's doing, whether she's helpful or harmful, she has appeared to people in this house even since before it turned into a museum, which was in 1897. So she's been popping up for decades. Still can find that silver. The Tom, I just happened to go up to the Van Cortlandt Park and to the house just yesterday. It had been a while since I've been up there, and I just wanted to walk those narrow hallways. Sure, and can you go in? Can you go from room to room in the, in the family house? You can. They have guided tours, and the rooms are, mysteriously enough, are sort of guarded by little gates, so you can't go all the way in the rooms unless you're with a tour guide. I happen to be there with a tour guide who was dressed like George Washington and told the story as if he were somehow still in 1776. Did he mention the the ghost of Washington? He he did not mention the ghost of himself, believe it or not, (laughs) or any other ghosts for that matter. But they are still there. Well, actually, while I was there, I did hear some shuffling upstairs. As for the park itself, I would have liked to venture into it and see if I could find any ghosts there. But there was a high school cross-country track meet that was going on, so I, I thought that might have spoiled the mood. But they might have just been running by Indian Field without ever knowing the story of the grisly fate of the men buried underfoot. I'm shivering over here, Greg. That was positively spooky. And well, I think that my next story is going to keep us basically in the same in the same era, but not in the same area, for we're going to go much, much further downtown. Back to New York proper. Back to New York proper. In fact, to 17 Barrow Street in the West Village, or the village of Greenwich at the time, This lovely three-story building, if you go by today on Barrow Street, is a restaurant called One If By Land, Two If By Sea. It's one of the most romantic restaurants in the city. I think there's probably one person who gets engaged there a night. And probably somebody at the table next to them celebrating at least one anniversary. And, And it's very historic inside. The original brick walls are there candlelit brick and wood carriage house, really, that was turned into this this lovely eatery. But what makes it worthy of retelling in an evening of haunted tales? Well, this is my story of the daughter who finally came home. Now, the building that we're talking about on Barrow Street was constructed in 1767, It was constructed as the carriage house of a lovely estate that is located south of today's location. So that's important to keep in mind, Mm -hmm. that today's restaurant didn't used to be there. It was one of the outlying houses behind a big estate. On a grand estate, on a huge parcel of property. Right. Just south of where it is today was was this area called Richmond Hill. It had been developed in the 1730s by a British admiral named Sir Peter Warren. The area reminded him of the lands back home. He could look out from this area and see the shoreline and the rolling hills. So he named it Greenwich and referred to it as Greenwich. So he's actually one of the first people on record as referring to this area as Greenwich. So in 1767, Richmond Hill, the estate, was built here roughly at Charlton and in Hudson. And during the Revolutionary War, Washington, to bring up George again, Washington would stay here. He'd even be headquartered here for a while before he was forced out of town following the Battle of Long Island. It sounds like he moved into a lot of houses as he (laughs) crawled up the island, actually. He had to keep moving quickly. Right, of course. Well, after the war... Vice President John Adams, during New York's reign as the capital city, would live here in this estate. Oh. And later on, it would be purchased by Attorney General of New York State in 1794, Aaron Burr. Now, we've talked mm. about Aaron Burr in other podcasts. A notorious figure in right. early New York history. And we'll get to why in a mm-hmm. second here. But aside from this beautiful three-story estate, he also had this carriage house that was built in the backyard. And there he kept his coach and his sleigh. 
Aaron was married to a woman named Theodosia Bartow Prevost. They married in 1782, and the next year they gave birth to a daughter, Theodosia. So Aaron and Theodosia had another Theodosia. (laughs) Born in Albany, but then raised, because he was attorney general, Mm -hmm. but then raised in New York City and educated under the very watchful eye of her father, after her mother died. So young Theodosa would have been a well-educated, oh, very pri- high-society young woman. Very privileged position. At 14, she was considered the hostess of Richmond Hill, of the estate, and she'd welcome guests there and throw dinner parties and basically run the house. But Aaron Burr was growing a little bit nervous because he had some big bills to pay. It was very expensive, of course, to run this estate. So Burr was a bit relieved in 1801 when his daughter married Joseph Alston, who was from a rich South Carolina family. It was a, it was a strategic marriage because the family was very well-connected, and he would actually go on to become the governor of South Carolina. It was from his Richmond Hill estate that Aaron Burr woke up the morning of July 11th, 1804, took the boat across the Hudson, and participated in a duel, infamous duel, with Alexander Hamilton, whom he shot and was later charged with killing. Now, we we will not get into that whole story now. And of course, we should stress the fact that he was the vice president of the United States right. during this period. And it became very inconvenient for him because New York and New Jersey launched into trials against him trying to find him guilty of the murder. He wasn't found guilty. He would return to Washington, Mm -hmm. where he would finish off his vice presidential career, but then leave politics for his political career was basically ruined. Mm -hmm. Right? It was odd, however, because then he would get himself involved in another strange ordeal uh, in which he was allegedly planning to start up his own independent country (laughs) in land that was carved out of the Louisiana Territory. Mm -hmm. So what happened to Richmond Hill? Did he still own it by this time? Well, or? in 1804, when he took off, when he had to leave because uh, he was wanted in New York State and New Jersey, he transferred the lease over to John Jacob Astor, who was extremely powerful and developing land all over town. Now, this is where it gets a little bit confusing because Astor would develop the land around this area of West Soho today, basically, uh, of Richmond Hill. He developed streets and row houses. And by the account given by the restaurant and by others, he moved the carriage house from its spot behind the estate on logs. He, they pushed the carriage house up to Barrow Street, which was another development of Astor's. Wow, so instead of just building another structure, they, they moved the they old could, one. They wow. could move it up because it was, you know, it was an interesting building. Mm-hmm. It isn't that far, Greg. Okay, it's that's true. Maybe like a, you know, five to six minute walk. I'm just thinking of all these logs to use to roll well, yeah. the whole building. It's incredible. Well, you keep using the same ones. You move it to the front. <laughs> I know. I know that. (laughs) (laughs) Just clarifying. Just clarifying. Meanwhile, back to Burr. So he doesn't have the house anymore. But now he's really, his name is really Mud, and he can't find a job in in the States. So he takes off. For London, But his daughter, meanwhile, is living in South Carolina, the, the wife of the governor. So she had some political connections. So she was riding around trying to get her father, a, you know, a right of safe passage back to the States. Trying to repair his reputation. Right. And effect. just trying to get uh-huh. him kind of home on, on good terms. She succeeded. And finally, he was able to re- return to New York in July of 1812. Theodosia couldn't join him in New York in 1812 because of the outbreak of the War of 1812. Mm -hmm. She waited to go on her own until the very end of the year. And in fact, on December 31st, 1812, Theodosia boarded the Patriot, a vessel from Georgetown, South Carolina. They were going to make a quick jaunt up the eastern seaboard to New York City so that she could be back with her father. The only problem is that the Patriot was never seen again. We don't know what happened to it. It was it was a shipwreck, or was it was it captured? Or well, there there were several stories circulating, several of which involved shipwrecks pillaged by pirates, with only Theodosia alive. One in which she um, was rescued. She was tied up alone on the shipwreck pillaged ship. She was rescued by an Indian chief who took her ashore where she told him the whole story, gave him a locket with her name on it, and promptly died in his arms. I mean, that sounds like it's from this 
book from Clarksdale here, this Ghost of Pegleg Pete's a very well, dramatic story. Well, not even as dramatic as another, even more popular story, which had pirates attacking and killing all the men on the ship before forcing poor Theodosia to walk the plank and jump into the sea, at which point she looked up, waved it all on board, smiling as she sank out of sight. Ooh. A, a less dramatic hypothesis uh, and the one that most scholars today believe is that the Patriot was shipwrecked. There was a big storm on January 2nd, 1813, which was just three days after they took off. So it, it seems a little bit more likely that they that could have been caught reason. up in mm-hmm. that. Regardless, Aaron Burr would continue to live in New York. In 1833, when he was 77 years old, he married the wealthy widow Eliza Jumel. Mm. And they lived together in the Morris Jumel mansion up in Upper Manhattan. Well, Miss Jumel has appeared in a ghost story podcast in the past. If I recall, that marriage didn't go so well. No. In fact, it didn't take her very long before she realized that that her husband, Aaron, uh, was making some not very wise real estate decisions, uh, speculating on property, and basically ruining her fortune. So after four months together, she separated from him, mm-hmm. a separation which became legal on September 14th, 1836, the very same day that Aaron Bird died in a boarding house in Port Richmond, Staten Island. So where does this go in terms of a ghost story for we have well di- there's so many people right who have passed out of the story mm-hmm. so many possibilities and meanwhile the carriage house is up on Barrow Street at this point. But now surrounded by other bu- many, many other buildings. Well, at first it wasn't surrounded by much but other carriage houses and other stables and that sort of things with pigs and swine in the streets, eating garbage, you can imagine the scene. A firehouse would be built next door uh, to it, and, and the animals would be banished from the streets, um, along with vegetable carts and things were not allowed to be there anymore because they needed to be able to take the fire trucks out, mm, which is mm-hmm. kind of interesting. And firemen were living up above in the second floor of the of the carriage house at this time. Now, in the 1890s, the city sold the house to a new owner who turned it into a brothel, a house of ill <laughs> repute. And so it just kept it kept on going and changing with the times. Multi-use here. But throughout the 20th century, from 1910 onward, it basically was in the business of either being a restaurant or a bar kind of swiveled between the two until in 1971 when it was sold to its present owners who decided to restore it to a very nice upscale restaurant. When you walk in, there's there's a bar area with a couple fireplaces and a baby grand piano. And then there's a big open dining room, uh, a staircase leading up to an upstairs dining room behind that. And then there's off to the right, there's another private dining room where they have some drawings of Aaron Burr and of Alexander Hamilton. But it seems that that may not be all that they have of Aaron Burr because it seems like he might still be hanging around the restaurants. And several of the patrons and and even the restaurant staff have reported that they felt certain things. They felt chairs being pulled out from under them or drafts of air blowing through the rooms in weird spots. There are oil paintings of New Yorkers long dead, which seem to tilt on their own. Dishes and plates have been reported moving by themselves about the candlelit table. Waiters sometimes feel a push or a nudge and they turn around, but there's nobody there. Waiters have reported heading over to a table because they see a man sitting by himself, only to realize when they get over there that, well, there's nobody at the table. These ghosts don't seem to be doing anything malicious. They seem to be just playing around. Ghost experts have gone there, said that they they feel the presence of about 20 different distinct ghosts in this space. But one has to, you know, the skeptic in me wonders, well, why in the world would Aaron Burr be one of these? He lived in so many amazing places, including the Morris Jumel Mansion. Right. Why would he come back to his carriage house, of all places? He never lived in the carriage house, but it is such a historic building. It does seem... Like he might have come back here waiting for somebody. 
I stopped by today, and they, they were kind enough to let me in. On a Sunday afternoon, they'd do a jazz brunch and show me around. And I spoke to a woman who worked there who confirmed that, oh, yeah, very matter-of-fact about, you know, the fact that she's, she's felt some ghosts here and there, you know. She had been upstairs for a period and heard footsteps above her on the third floor, but there was nobody up there. Other waiters there have reported seeing a woman dressed in black descending the staircase. A woman. A woman. A woman in black descending the stairs, always descending. It makes me wonder if perhaps Theodosia has come home to her father after all. And so a haunted dining experience for those who wish to be in the presence of a former vice president and his lovely daughter. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. We turn our attention now to Brooklyn, although in the era that I'm about to speak about, it was nothing but a village. Last year... Tom, you may remember, you told the story of Melrose Hall, which was an 18th century ghost story that was set around the area of Lefferts Garden. If I recall, that was a good old-fashioned haunted house. Mm-hmm. Well, this, this is in the similar vein, except that we're going to be in a different area, the area that comprises Carroll Gardens and Cobble Hill neighborhoods today. Oh. The story is the ghost of Red Hook Lane. 
But the geography of the story is going to be very important because it's almost unrecognizable because today it's a very historic... Beautiful um, brownstones. But in the late 18th century, most of what was considered Brooklyn was in fact around the area of Fulton Ferry and that elevation right next to it, which of course we call Brooklyn Heights today. It had not yet become a fashionable place for wealthy people as it would in the early 19th century. Further south from this particular height was another elevation, a large hill that the Dutch called Cobbles Hill. One word, a conical-shaped hill, very unusual shape. Mm -hmm. The original name, by the way, of both the hill and the area around it was Ponkysburg. So the con... (laughs) You're getting all of the fun names today. I am. I can't believe it. So this conical-shaped hill... Conical in Ponkysburg. ...was 60 to 80 feet tall. Later, of course, it's completely leveled, so you can't really tell that such a hill existed there today. And we're talking, in particular, the corner of Atlantic and Court Street, Atlantic and Corp. Why does that sound familiar? Is that where I get my tuna for cats? <laughs> it, there's a Trader Joe's there right. on top of other buildings. I'll get to the Trader Joe's. It, it will figure into the end of the story, oh. believe it or not. This, of course, is the neighborhood of today's Cobble Hill. Now, back in the day, back at the beginning of the 19th century, running right by that hill, down this edge of Long Island, almost parallel, was a road called the Red Hook Lane. It traces its lineage back to the days of Native American occupation. It was an old Indian road, and the Dutch repurposed this and expanded it eventually so that it went down to the area of Red Hook, um, which is today another neighborhood, but it's the area next to the shoreline just further south from here. It was a meandering path that passed through all these various land parcels that were owned by farmers, for the most part, undeveloped land. Now, in the 1770s, uh, in the run-up to the Revolutionary War, which we've continually visited so far on this show, I like that, several fortifications were built in this area around Brooklyn due to its proximity to the shoreline. They built forts all over the place. In Brooklyn Heights, there was Fort Sterling. Down in Red Hook, there was a Fort Defiance. The land further east got a fort called Fort Green, and of course, that neighborhood still holds that name. But here in Cobles Hill, they also built a fort, um, which is sometimes called the Cobles Hill Fort or the Corkscrew Fort. For an entrenchment that was built around the fort was in the shape of a spiral Mm. down the hill. So imagine this striking and unusual form. Now, of course, the British did invade Brooklyn and were ultimately successful in running out the Continental Army. The British did take over many of these forts themselves. Then, of course, later, when the British left, residents came in, dismantled some of the forts. Due to some of the run-up of the War of 1812, many of them were briefly refurbished. In fact, Cobbles Hill Fort then became Fort Swift. But then, by the 1820s, these forts were no longer needed. They were no longer necessary. And so, this old fort here just sort of fell into ruin and overgrowth. But then, of course, became the source of many legends and stories that were attached to this because on a moonlit night, you would see the silhouette of this bizarre building. And of course, if those with imaginations might think it might be haunted, for instance, carriages would race by it at night and the play of passing light as it went by upon those old stone walls would create curious shadows and unexplained movements along the rocks, along those old walls. A 19th century historian by the name of Henry Reed Stiles wrote, quote, Not far from its base was a ghost-haunted spot about which dreadful stories are whispered, which lent wings to the feet of such unwary village urchins as happened to pass it after dark. We don't know how it got this reputation, but obviously something malevolent and evil happened here. But there's no clear picture of whether it was a British apparition or whether it went back even further. Well, well, how do we know that anything happened here? Is there any recorded haunting? I, in fact, have a tale here of a poor soul who crossed paths with the specter, the spirit that lives here. About a half a mile away from the fort, in today's Carroll Gardens neighborhood, so just a little south, sat the home of a famous British actress, 
by the name of Charlotte Melmoth. The story just took an intriguing <laughs> turn. Ms. Melmoth um, was a huge star in the New York theatrical scene at the beginning of the 19th century. In fact, she retired in the year 1812. And so she moved to this home, very secluded house, because she liked her privacy, and she taught children of wealthy families from her parlor. So it was here she taught skills of elocution and etiquette to the next generations of prominent Brooklyn families. She died in 1826. Unfortunately for her home, it was scandalously transformed into a tavern, a tavern of rowdy and particularly debauched nature. Lacking... Any sort of etiquette. Oh, no, and no elocution whatsoever going on here. All manner of drinkers would escape here. To quote Mr. Stiles again, quote, It became a famous resort for the dissipated young men of the town who there indulged in drinking, eating oysters, raffling for turkeys and geese, etc., their orgies being carried on with the freedom to which the retired character of the spot was particularly conducive. Turkey raffles. Raffles? They're so crazy. Get drunk and raffle things off. (laughs) Well, one evening, this is no laughing matter, Tom. One evening, sometime in the fall, around 11 p.m., darkness, of course, had fallen over Brooklyn and all up and down Red Hook Lane. The only sounds that you could hear from here were, of course, um, down on the shore with ships knocking and rattling against the piers and the wind blowing through the trees. And, of course... The sounds of mad, wild merriment at old Charlotte Melmoth's house here. Well, the rowdies here were just drinking. Apparently, it was a major party this night. They just partied and drank some more. In fact, they drank so much that by 11 p.m., they discovered that all the brandy was gone. Well, that's no problem, actually. All you needed to do was run into town, go to Fulton Ferry, and down there, you could buy all the liquor you needed. And that was only like 10 or 15 minutes away on horseback. But you'd have to take Red Hook Lane. You pass by all those farms, of course, but you'd also pass by the old fort, which by Mm. this point has all these ghost stories associated with it. All these men, they knew the stories. In fact, they probably told themselves these stories over the brandy they had just drunk in front of a flickering fireplace, completely spooking themselves. They needed to drink. They They needed some alcohol. So one person volunteered to stand up and to go to town. We don't know his first name, but we do know the last name because it's pretty important to this area of Brooklyn. His last name was Borum. This was an old Dutch family who owned land just to the east of this and other parcels throughout the county. And they would be the same Borum as in Borum Hill. Correct. Borum Hill, which is the adjacent neighborhood to Cobble Hill. We're not sure exactly which Borum this is. Let's just say he was just a young drunken Borum. But he bragged to his friends that he was not afraid of this ghost. In fact, he said, I would like to actually meet this ghost. Okay, so he was... um, He had (laughs) finished the brandy, hadn't he? (laughs) Yes, the the liquid confidence. So Borum jumped on his horse and he headed on down the lane. He headed towards the ferry. It would have been completely pitch dark, right? Because, I mean, there there are no other buildings around Mm -hmm. here. Just the light of the moon, possibly a flicker of the lights from the town in the distance. And he himself may have had a lantern. But from the perspective of his friends at the tavern, he saw him disappear into the night and be swallowed up in the darkness. Well, they went back to their merriment. Possibly they had other things to drink, other stories to tell, more raffles, (laughs) more turkeys to raffle. Now, it's only, like I said, about 10 minutes on horseback. They would give him 30 minutes to get the booze and 10 or 15 minutes to come back. Well, midnight came and there was no sign of Borum. So they decided to wait another hour. It's 1 a.m. There's no sign of Borum. Where'd he go? They got a little concerned. Some of them thought that maybe he'd stolen their money and he wasn't going to come back. Maybe he got into a fight in town because he'd been drinking a lot of brandy that night. So they sent out a search party. They galloped up the road for just a few minutes until they could just make out the shape of the fort in the moonlight. You know, they could just make out, like, part of the silhouette. And then on the side of the road, they saw something moving on Red Hook Lane. They saw a movement. So they got a little closer. They held up their lanterns. And they saw it was Borum's horse standing there alone by the fence. Almost as if purposefully left there. But of course, I mean, who would go out and venture in these ruins at night by themselves without light? Who would do that? Well, they took the horse and they decided to venture further down the path, almost to the point where the lane passed nearest to the fort. So it was the closest that you could get. Laying on the road in front of the fort, they found Borum. 
completely senseless, and his face was frozen in a mask of horror. Quote, his features horribly distorted, as though he'd witnessed something so ghastly that it permanently froze his face with this look of shock. Well, the friends took Borum back home, either to his home or to the tavern. I'm not quite clear on that. He stayed in this senseless, frozen state for two or three days, and eventually he died from this experience. No medical explanation other to say that Borum died of fright. But whatever became of this fort? Well, the fort and, of course, the hill were eventually leveled as the whole neighborhood within the next couple decades, they had their own grid plan that was developed. And so the city became developed, became larger. And so the hill and the fort were completely washed away. Now, of course, today, that is the corner of Court Street and Atlantic. It's really that block between Court Street and Clinton and Atlantic and Pacific. So that particular block, because I mean, it was a tall hill, you know? So more than just Trader Joe's, the whole block. Sure. I mean, all these fine neighborhood establishments right there. There's Trader Joe's, Chipotle, there's that great wine shop. Fine neighborhood establishments, (laughs) yeah. The great great wine shop, yes. But it was there on this spot of the old fort. So that Trader Joe's, by the way, is in this old bank building, the Independent Savings Bank building. On the side of it, it's a very large marking honoring George Washington, who had, you know, in 1776, stood in that very spot and looked back into Brooklyn and saw that, you know, he was losing the war and that he needed to draw his army back and have them escape over to Manhattan. So it sort of honors that particular moment. But I can't keep out of my mind this ghost story now when I go to this corner. So to anyone who lives in that neighborhood, next time you're in Trader Joe's, you're picking up your container of quinoa or you're getting your organic Greek yogurt and you feel a chill up your spine, well, maybe it's the ghost of Cobbles Hill Fort. Well, before I launch into this final ghost story for tonight, Greg, you mentioned that the acclaimed actress... Charlotte Millis, yes. Charlotte had retired from the stage around 1812, Mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to take us right back into that period of New York theater around 1800, 1810, of, of course, today we think of New York theater as incredibly ruthless and competitive. It was as well back uh, 200 years ago. There's so much hard work that goes into being a successful actor or actress mm-hmm. on stage. And in return, you get the, the audience's rapturous applause, which can be reward enough for it. But the stresses, I think, of the theater can also drive actors to ruinous behavior. So my, my story is a tale of when a wildly successful actor can fall victim to his own self-destructive nature. And, well, what happens when the theater makes you lose your head? You mean, like, lose your mind? No, Greg, I'm saying the title of my story is What Happens When the Theater Can Make You Lose Your Head? Now, as we've mentioned in various shows before, the early theater district was concentrated around Park Row, down by today's City Hall and City Hall Park. Well, the most important theater in the early 1800s was, in fact, called the Park Theater, which was originally called the New Theater. It was built between 21 and 35 Park Row and opened in January 1798. The first performance in 1798 was a sellout. Hundreds of people had to be turned away. And the critics raved about this theater as it had this impressive interior with brilliant decoration. And it could could seat 2,000 people. It was almost the only show in town, but as it was called the new theater, obviously not completely alone, there was another theater, this, the John Street Theater. It wasn't called the theater. It wasn't called the theater, it was the new theater. Okay. Yeah. The old theater was the John Street Theater, located nearby, but that was seen as kind of common, and, and they put on sort of lowbrow entertainments. So the new theater sweeps in, and it was doing posher productions, you know, um, Italian operas and the sort. The early owners, though, did struggle to pay their bills, and they sold the theater in 1805 to a man I've already mentioned, John Jacob Astor, who would go on to own Richmond Hill and develop the the area in the West Village. Mm -hmm. 
they gave it a big renovation a few years, less than 10 years after it opened. They remodeled it. They, they gave it additional comforts. They gave it gas lighting, uh, bigger boxes. They tried to really class it up. The, the theater attracted stars from England, big stars, and they brought with them a sense of class to the New York theater scene. And throughout the, the 1820s, it would continue to produce highbrow entertainment relative to the other theaters, which were going for more melodrama, minstrel shows, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. The Park Theater would dip into that. But I want to take us back to that, the earlier days when it was the premier theater in town. And with an actor named George Frederick Cook. Now, he was a celebrated English actor. Remember, they were bringing over people to give the theater some class. He was born someplace, either in <laughs> London or in Dublin in 1756. <laughs> he really he was born someplace? He was born someplace. <laughs> well, he claimed to be born in London, uh, but it seems like he was maybe born in Dublin. He had a less affluent upbringing than he would lead on. Right. He was a printer's apprentice, but left it because he was seduced by the stage and appeared in London in 1778 before spending about a decade touring the English countryside with a troupe of actors doing Shakespeare and doing other kinds of dramas. He developed his own unique style that was very dramatic, even kind of melodramatic. He was he was loud. He had an unusual cadence to the way that he delivered lines. It was an era where you could shock an audience by delivering lines in a different way than they were accustomed to mm-hmm. and really make a name for yourself. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't just a star. He was also a troubled star, because this is, of course, going to become a ghost story. <laughs> he had developed a case of alcoholism as well, and, and he would binge drink while on the road. That would leave him often incapable of performing, which is a bad thing, especially when the audiences had been explicitly coming to, to see on stage. Well, especially one where you needed to put like a forceful, like melodramatic personality behind it. If you're hungover, that's oh, unpleasant. Or, or especially if you have to remember a bunch of Shakespearean mm-hmm. verse. He didn't like the London press. They weren't very kind to him, perhaps because of his erratic behavior. So he left for an American tour in 1810. While he was in the U.S. touring in Richard III uh, at the Park Theater Mm -hmm. in 1810, or perhaps I should call it the The New New Theater. Theater, on November 11th, 1810, that opened at the Park. It was a huge opening. He, He really took New York by storm. He toured for two years. He did occasionally fall off the wagon fall off the stage <laughs> probably in in fact one critic um i read a review of a performance a glowing review of a performance in boston which said unfortunately the actor had been taken seriously ill for the previous week and incapable of performing on stage mm. so one can read between the lines there and that and meant. guess what was mm. happening to our poor cook he also drew a lot of money. He made $250,000 for the American theater owners, of which he only saw about $20,000 of it, which left him quite angry for all the work he had done for two years. And he decided to return to London to play at the Covent Garden in 1812. As we've mentioned before, 1812 was, toward the end of the year, a difficult year to get around. We had Miss Melmoth retired at her home. We have Theodosa Trying to get up north. And now we have Cook trying to get back home to play at the Covent Garden. He was stuck here. He was stranded in New York, and he died on September 26, 1812, of cirrhosis, with only $2,000 to his name. Well, he was buried in St. Paul's Chapel in the Stranger's Vault. Now, St. Paul's, it's funny step- to think about it, was sort of a new church at this time. Right, and it steps away from the park, from the new theater. right. Right, just basically across Broadway. It had been built in 1766 as a parish for Trinity Church. George Washington actually would even worship there on his inaugural day in 1789. And you can still go there and find his pew of where he worshipped on his inaugural day. And throughout um, his time in New York. So Mr. Cook is buried in the Stranger's Vault at St. Paul's Chapel. Right. And don't forget, this man was really famous. And 
When word got back that he had been given this kind of sad, anonymous burial, there were actors who were really saddened by this, including a very well-known actor of the time, a few years later, Edmund Keane, who in 1821 took a tour in the U.S. as well. And he thought that sh- something should be done. So this is nine years after, after Cook died. He thought something should be done about the great actors. So he paid himself to have a, a monument erected in the graveyard at St. Paul's Chapel dedicated to George Frederick Cook and to have his body moved from the stranger's vault to the graveyard. To his right? very own uh, to his, spot. To his own right. spot mm-hmm. in the sort of public graveyard, a place where other people could, could visit him, venerate him. Now, this is where the story gets interesting and in some ways conflicting. And bizarre. But, Yes, it seems, though, in all the stories, they all involve his body not completely making the transfer (laughs) intact. Meaning? Well, let's just start at one end of his body. It it seems that Keane himself wanted to take back a relic of the great actor. So the actor stole a piece of the great actor's big toe bone. (laughs) For what possible purpose could that be? To honor and to cherish. Quote, it was a little black relic and might have passed for a tobacco stopper. So what did he do with this actor's toe? Well, he took it on tour with him and then he brought it back to London where he made his wife keep it on display on the fireplace mantle. Sure, of course. And (laughs) she obviously hated it, right? The cleaning staff was positively spooked by this shriveled black toe. (laughs) But he thought it was worth more than anything else that they owned. In fact, he thought that his own son, who was also an actor, that this would be the most important thing that he would pass down to his son and that it would be exceedingly valuable. And when guests would come over, guests to the Keene family house, who were in the know, other actors, other educated types, he would always show it off. And sometimes, if they were actors and needed to pay respect, he would make them get down on their knees and kiss the shriveled toe. This has gone beyond the point of a a ghost story now. This is now in the realm, David Lynch realm... Of surreal <laughs> well, nightmares. So you're siding then with Mrs. Keene on the <laughs> side. So. Well, one day she had just had enough. He was away on tour, and she went over to this thing that was sitting on the mantle, and she she really she was up to here. She covered it with a piece of paper. She picked it up. She walked over and threw it out the window. <laughs> that is not the end of the body. Well, that was the, the part, end of the story because that is in England. The rest of his body is here in St. Paul's, correct? Well, much of the rest of his body. There's some speculation over the head, because it seems that John Francis, the man who wrote the the book in 1857, Old New York, Mm -hmm. it seems that he wound up somehow with the great actor's skull. Perhaps he didn't steal it, but he ended up owning it. And here's how he explains it. I'm going to quote him. A theatrical benefit had been announced at the park, the park theater, and Hamlet, the play. A subordinate of the theater hurried to my office, he was a doctor, at a late hour for a skull, you know, for a prop Mm -hmm. in the play. There's that scene. I was compelled to loan the head of my old friend George Frederick Cook. It was returned in the morning, but on the ensuing evening at a meeting of the Cooper Club, the circumstance becoming known to several of the members and a general desire being expressed to investigate phrenologically, the head of the great tragedian, the article was again released from its privacy when Daniel Webster, yes, Henry Wheaton, and many others who enriched the meaning of that night, applied the principles of craniological science to the interesting specimen before them. The renowned congressman Daniel Webster, one of the most powerful politicians of the 19th century, played around with this head? Yeah, he he gazed upon it, he even studied it phrenologically, and determined that, yes, he had a very large cranium. And it would be passed on from doctor to doctor. Generations would pass along this skull. It would wind up in the hands of Ross Patterson, who was the dean of Thomas Jefferson University Medical School of Philadelphia, who would donate it to the medical school in 1938. And the story's not over there, Greg, for in November 1980, the skull would reappear on stage in New Jersey in the Mercer County Community College production of Hamlet. 
on loan from the medical school. So what is left of him in the cemetery at St. Paul's? Well, today, if you go to St. Paul's, um, and I encourage you to do so, if you walk in from the Trade Center side, you walk into the, into the cemetery, you will see Cook's monument that was put up by Keene is one of the most prominent uh, before you in between that gate and the back entrance of the church. You will see it. It's really, really extremely prominently placed in the middle of the churchyard. So it is said that late at night when the church is closed and, and the gate locked up, and the moonlight casting down through the trees and upon the gravestones, it is said that one can sometimes hear the thump Thump, thumping around, well, what's left of him is wandering, for it's a headless, toeless spirit that wanders between the graves and monuments. For even in death, it seems that actors are always trying to get ahead. So that concludes our quartet of creepy early New York ghost stories. Check us out on the blog, barrywardspodcast.com, where, well, I won't have any photographs. I'll have many pictures of the places, of course, how they look today, um, including St. Paul's Chapel, including Cook's Memorial, on top of other spooky photographs. I took a photo today you could use. Mm -hmm. Of course, you can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. On Twitter, it's Bowery Boys. And on, uh, look for us on Facebook and join the wonderful community there as well. Now, Greg, I noticed when I was on the website the other day that, that there is a new donate button in the upper right-hand corner. So, yes, a little explanation. We're trying to bump this up to the next level. We're, we're hiring a graphic designer. We're changing the whole look of the of our artwork um, so that it looks better. It looks better than ever on iTunes and wherever you get podcasts. We're upgrading the website. In fact, we're going to have a new recording studio, hopefully, if everything works out in the next couple months. So and all buying the- a new mixer, which, by the way, <laughs> during the recording of this show, went bad on us and started recording in what can only be described as some sort of demonic, um, <laughs> otherworldly fashion. It's almost as if our own mixing board was crying out from the undead or, or rather, it's about to die, essentially. So if you feel so inclined and would like to give us a little hand to upgrade the equipment and uh, redevelop the website, we appreciate the donations. You can do that um, on the website, BoweryBoysPodcast.com. And we thank you so much. And so, Tom, ends another Halloween Ghost Stories podcast. Thank you all very much for tuning in. Have a great New York week. Whether you live here or not, see you real soon.